All right, all right, all right, church family, we're going to get after it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You want to grab a seat? Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you here this morning. After a great night last night, and now we get to worship the Lord today. Huh? That's all I'll say. But it is good to see everybody here this morning, see a few new faces. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here, along with Cleet and Charles, and we are kicking off a Christmas series. I want to pray briefly, not because that's kind of a checkbox thing you do when you're at church, but because I believe the Lord, by His Spirit, really wants to speak to His people. And I just want to ask Him to posture our hearts to be prepared to receive whatever He has for you. For whatever reason you find yourself here, because maybe you're a member or somebody twisted your arm or you smelt bacon or any other number of reasons, I believe there's a sovereign king who has you here for a purpose, and that purpose is to speak to your heart. So, Father, we quiet our hearts before you. We ask, show us your glory, Lord, that you would roll up your sleeves and throw us haymaker that we might see you in all of your majesty. Um, Lord, even though we're going to a super familiar verse, I pray that its familiarity would not breed contempt, but rather breed deeper celebration. Cradle in the cross and in the crown, in the fullness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. When the average person thinks of Christmas, what do they typically think of? Santa Claus. Snow. You're not going where I, I would hope you would go, but that's fine. We can work with that. Uh, the average person, okay? Don't give me the church answer here. We think of presents, right? Maybe, maybe giving or maybe getting presents. And if we were to be honest, the average kid, when they think of Christmas, what do they think of? Gifts. What am I getting? I, I remember I was a young boy, my grandmother would make this paper chain of 25 links. And I would rip off one link each day leading up to and anticipating Christmas. I can assure you I was not thinking, man, I can't wait till we get to that last 25th link and we get to celebrate the incarnation all of its fullness. I was thinking, I get to see what's underneath the tree for me, right? It was, it was gifts. Now, nothing wrong with giving gifts uh, in, in the proper balance. But as much as giving and receiving gifts is decidedly not the ultimate purpose of Christmas, I want to be clear on this. God is a lavish gift giver. God is a lavish gift giver. You think about it. God created this gift of creation. Creations. Glorious creation. And, and by the way, even though there's a song that says he didn't want heaven without us, he did not create us out of any need, okay, the Father, Son, and Spirit were doing just quite fine in eternal fellowship. But out of the overflow of his heart, God created creation. And the crown jewel in the artistic masterpiece of creation was, guess who? 
humans, you and I. But what did we do? We, in the form of uh, our, our ancestors and Adam and Eve, we took the one thing not given to us, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like people do today, right? They're given so much and they take something that's not theirs. What happened when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I don't think with this last week's headlines you need me to convince you of sin, right, and brokenness and pain and rebellion and depravity and wickedness and all the rest. It plunged humanity into the condition we find ourselves in. So what did God do? Well, what do we do when we give somebody a gift and they abuse it? What do we do? Sometimes we just take it back. Or at least we say to ourselves, I'm never giving you a thing again. Not God, not God. Even though we abused the gift that he gave us, plunging creation into sin, this is what God does. God seeks to restore, and he ups the ante infinitely when he not only gives outside of himself, he gives himself literally. And that's what Christmas is all about. God giving himself as the ultimate gift to a fallen, sin-stricken world. And that's what we're going to look at for the next three weeks from three very well-known texts. And this morning we're going to start from John 3.16, arguably the most well-known text of Scripture, probably, right? It's been called the Bible in miniature. The late great preacher L.M. Lockridge said of John 3.16, never has so much been said to so many in so few words. I want to talk to you, just by way of introduction, about a guy named Rainbow Man. Had nothing to do with the way rainbows are used today. And you probably don't know who Rainbow Man is unless you can remember watching Archie Bunker or Three's Company, and there's hardly any of us like that. A few of us in the way back, right? <laughs> oh, you remember. So who was the Rainbow Man? I think his name was Rollin Stewart. And Rollin Stewart came from a really bo- broken background. Both his parents were alcoholics. His dad died when he was nine. His mom died when she was 16, uh, when he was 16. That same year, one of his sisters is strangled to death by her boyfriend. Just a broken, broken, broken uh, upbringing. And he, as all of us, has a hole in his heart, you know. There's an ache. Life is broken. And he thinks to himself, if I can be famous, that will soothe this ache in my soul. So he actually endeavors to grow the largest mustache in the world. I'm not telling a joke here. It it doesn't work out. He apparently doesn't have the hair follicles for that. So then, boom, a light bulb goes off, and he decides, this is what I'm going to do to get famous. Anybody remember the Rainbow Man? He says, I'm going to get a loincloth and a rainbow-colored Afro wig, and I'll don that majestic apparel and I'll show up at athletic contests and figure out how to get on camera. Now you maybe remember him. Then I will get famous. So he launched this incredibly innovative initiative in the 1977 NBA playoff finals in Portland, Oregon. He walks into the arena. Then he, he puts on the loincloth and the Afro rainbow wig, colored wig. And, and, and instantly, the arena is a buzz. Then the cameraman pans over on him, and like overnight, 
he became instantaneously a sensation across America. If you re- remember watching sports in the late 70s, early 80s, you would have seen the Rainbow Man. And man, he is hooked. He sells his pot farm. He moves to L.A., and he says, this is going to be my permanent gig. And it actually works. He becomes famous. He actually makes his way onto a national Budweiser commercial and was paid handsomely for it. But one day between uh, athletic contests, I guess, he's in a hotel room, and he turns on the TV, and he comes across some religious programming, and he hears somebody talking about John 3.16. And the rainbow man confesses John 3.16 there in his hotel room. He says, now what am I going to do? I got this shtick going. I know what I'll do. I'll trade the uh, loincloth for jeans and a t-shirt emblazoned with the letters John 3.16. And he continues to be a sensation. Sportscasters have to work hard not to have him on camera. He becomes a cultural icon. He was on a Saturday Night Live skit. Actually, Christopher Walken played him. He made his way into a Simpsons episode. It really took off. It worked. Now, This story of Rollins Stewart, the Rainbow Man, actually takes a very dark turn. We're going to come back to that as I close the message. Because it reminds us there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. There's a difference between knowing in your head and actual saving faith. But, But for now, I bring it up because... As a young boy growing up, I considered myself a Christian. I was a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian. I mean, I wasn't Buddhist. I wasn't Hindu. I wasn't atheist. I wasn't Jehovah's Witness. I wasn't Mormon and all the rest. Of course I'm a Christian. But I remember watching a football game and seeing John 3.16 right behind the field goal post. I want to talk about what John 3.16 has to say to us. John 3.16 unpacks really easily. I want to talk to you about the fact of John 3.16, the act of John 3.16, and the pact of John 3.16. This verse, John 3.16, addresses the most important question you and I will ever face, bar none. Namely, What is my standing with God? And face it, you will, because we all will stand before God. Many of you say, hey, I understand John 3.16, I've trusted Christ. I say, praise God for that. But, but, But I would say two things to you. Number one, are you sure? Maybe you haven't. As Pastor Cleet mentioned last week or the week before, some 60% of confessing Christians don't actually possess a relationship with him. Could be somebody here. And the second thing I would say is if you really have trusted Christ, you have saving faith, you just don't know about him in your head, you, you've trusted him in your heart, then, then, then this, is, this verse is high-voltage shock therapy for the issues that you and I face as couples or as singles or as teens. Because this is an atomic bomb of grace. The very thing we forget, do we not, in our struggles. We forget the majestic grace of God. So y'all with me this morning? We're going to look at, first of all, what? The fact 
of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That is the fact that I'm highlighting by way of point one. For God so loved the world. What does he mean there by world? He means by world this great sea of humanity consisting of people across every possible line, across national lines, across ethnic lines, across political lines, across racial lines and socioeconomic lines, every possible line, God just plain old loves the world. God loves the world. God loves the world. God just loves the world. Now, I said that with a little bit increased volume, but, but the thing is, I think if we were to be honest, the, the needle of the amazement meter in our heart barely moves a tick, right, when we hear God loves the world. We just think, well, of course he does. That's kind of his job description. What else is he up there to do except to love us? And besides, we're really lovable anyway. But God is not some Santa Claus in the sky. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. Your heart beats by God's grace right now. And one day, according to his calendar for you, your heart will stop beating. And you will be ushered directly into his presence to stand before him. God is the one who over and over and over and over in Scripture is described as holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There's that scene in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, when he sees the holiness of God. God is the one who provides for all of our needs and tells us how we ought to live. Not to be a killjoy, but to be a max joy. The right way, the best way to live. But what do we do? We're a bunch of grab baggers, right? We are a bunch of grab baggers. We take his good stuff, but we spurn his authority. I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to do me. I'm going to call my shots. And I know this sounds hard. But it reveals what entitled brats we fallen humanity really are. Would anybody disagree? And then Romans 121 rises up as an indictment against every human being ever born. It says in Romans 21, for although they knew God, in other words, they knew he existed. You look at your fingerprints, you look at the fact that you know, if we were one degree this way, we'd be permanent Arctic blizzard. One degree this way, we would all melt. But God positioned earth just where it needs to be in relationship to the sun. You look at all these things, there's a God. There is a God. But it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, grab baggers, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I know, though, this is a tough pill to swallow. Do you know what we really deserve from God? Anybody want to say? The judgment of God. And the Bible calls that wrath. Not as we think of wrath like just knee-jerk. 
anger. No, as a settled disposition against all that's evil. And let me just make this as simple as I can. Let me make it plain. Because you really agree with that, even though you initially recoil with that. You agree with that. Imagine. It doesn't take much imagining with what happened last week. Imagine you have a loved one who had a brutal crime committed against them. Brutal crime. Loved one. Gone. You show up at the day of judgment before the court. And the judge says to the, the culprit of the one who perpetrated this brutal murder against your loved one, says, hey, no, even though you did, that, you, you did do it, I know you did, you did it, I'm just feeling nice today. Forget about it. Act like it never happened. Just get out of here and go have some fun. Let me ask you this. Would that be a good judge or a bad judge? What kind of judge would that be? That would be a bad judge, right? Because a good judge would uphold the laws and work in the way of justice, not for injustice. Because God is good, he must deal with the injustice of our sin. And what that means, therefore, is that the wrath or judgment of God is what all of us are born deservedly facing. And that judgment is not going to be a pretty thing because hell is not a pretty thing. And John 3.18 says we're, we're condemned already. John 3.36 actually says the wrath of God abides on us. It's like it's, it's there in this ever-growing balloon and one day it's going to pop. And yet, the God who must punish sin because he's a good God, is the one who out of his love and his mercy made a way to rescue us from that same punishment. And this is what the gospel is about. That God is intrinsically, impeccably, infinitely holy, and we are altogether sinful. And yet he loves us. He loves us. That should make the amazing meter in our heart begin to at least vibrate a little bit and maybe go up a few ticks, huh? Because the fact is, for God so loved the world. Not this Pollyanna's view we, view we have of the world, but the world as it really is, full of depraved sinners. God so loved the world. That's a fact. Y'all down with me? Y'all down with the text? Y'all down with what God's saying? Because now there's an act for or because God so loved the world. That was the motivating factor, it says, that he gave his only son. He gave his only son, old version, only begotten son, his, only, his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son, his son. Now, sometimes Muslims and other religious groups get it twisted. And what, what, what it's not saying is that Jesus started to exist uh, at his birth, Right? Or that he is the product of a sexual relationship that Mary had, say, with Joseph. No, no. Jesus came into this world through this mysterious and glorious work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary so that the eternal second person of the Trinity took upon flesh. That's why it says in Isaiah 9, 6, a child was born, but a son was given. He always existed. 
John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Now verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father. This is what Christmas is all about. Eternal God becoming man. 100% man and 100% God in Jesus Christ. And those are pretty gritty story. It is a gritty story, right? Like, I don't know, a stinky stable. Backwoods of Nazareth. Bunch of nobodies, Mary and Joseph. Though it's a gritty story, it's a pretty story, isn't it? That's why we love our manger scenes and we celebrate it. But there was nothing gritty about the purpose for which Jesus came. Or nothing pretty. Actually, gritty would, would put it mildly. He came to die, to die as a sacrifice in our place, to absorb the hit that we ought to take. And the ancient prophet Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. It says, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. We're going to sing about this truth in just a few minutes. He came to suffer a death that we should die forever in our place. Gritty, but also glorious, right? The cradle, then the cross. And the funny thing is, is not the funny thing, it's, it's, it's sad. Have you ever heard people try and call what I just described, Jesus absorbing the wrath of God in our place, God sending him for that reason, because he gave by sending, verse 18. Have you ever heard people describe this view of the cross as cosmic child abuse? Something that's, that's out there now among some variants of so-called Christianity, which is just the s silliest thing ever. For one, Jesus came... Out of love, right? Sarah read it. Greater love has no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. That's Jesus talking about himself to his disciples about what he's going to do for them. That's the first and primary application of John 15, 6, I think it is. And then he says back in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I have authority, authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. Well, no child cosmic child abuse. But what this text gets at is the love of the Father that compelled him to send his son for or because God so loved the sea of fallen humanity that he gave, he sent his only son. Now imagine a father, and this isn't hard to imagine, I don't think, who deeply loves his son. And he says to his son, son, there's something I want you to do for me. I have some enemies, and they deserve to perish. But I want you to go die in their place to rescue them that they might live. Now, can you just imagine a human father doing that? This is what God the Father did. 1 John 4.10 summarizes the second point with these words. Herein is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That word means 
wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. So what's the fact? For God so loved the world. What's the act? That he gave his only son. Now, I want to give you the pact. That's not the best word for it, but I'm trying to make it alliterated, okay? So bear with me. God says that whoever believes in Jesus, that whoever believes in him should, what? Not perish, but have what? So he says whoever believes in him won't get what they deserve. Instead, they'll get what they don't deserve. What he freely has offered to all without exception, eternal life. Heaven instead of hell. Eternal life instead of everlasting death. Joy instead of anguish. You just go on and on. That's what he offers. That's what he offers. Isn't that glorious? Now let's go back to Rainbow Man. It seems this guy really did not believe. Did you know that he uh, held a woman, kidnapped a woman at gunpoint? A maid at a hotel, two other men as well, they escaped. That he threatened to shoot airplanes coming in and out, in and out of Los Angeles International Airport. And then, <laughs> what a parable on the human condition and false confessions of faith. He placarded or he barricaded um, his room. He covered the windows with John 3.16 signs. For many years now, he's doing three consecutive life sentences in federal prison. And he has been denied parole at every request. Now, I listen, I don't make myself the judge of this guy's soul, right? That's not my job description. And perhaps there's some insanity in the mix there. But is he not a visceral illustration that indeed there is a difference between knowing and truly believing. And there is a pandemic of that. And I love you enough to tell you that. There is a difference between paying lip service to the Lord of John 3.16 and truly believing in the Lord of John 3.16. Now John 1.12 makes it clear what it means to really believe in Jesus as opposed just to know about him in your head. And it's the word receive. John 1.12. But as many as receive him, that is Jesus, to them does he give the right to become the children of God, which were born not of blood. You ain't born a Christian. You're born a sinner. You were not born of the will of the flesh. You can't work your way. We'll talk about that week two, week three, both, I guess, every time. <laughs> which were not born by the will of man. There's, there's no religious leader that can make the sign of the cross over you or anything like that and say, now you're forgiven, you're absolved. No, that's not how it works. You've got to be born of God. And you know you're being born of God when you turn to Jesus and you, there's the word again, receive him. Somebody says, well, how do I receive him? What, 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 receive him is what? 
Well, I think this might have some uh, contemporary Velcro. You don't receive them like you receive a vaccination shot. You know, you receive a vaccination shot, it's supposed to make you immune from a virus. A couple years ago, I got the Shingrex vaccine. I had shingles once before, and it's no fun. I thought, the VA said, hey, you can get this vaccine, and I did it. Now, how often do I think of the Shingrex vaccine? Never, until I hear about the poor person who got shingles, and I'm saying, boy, I wish they had, that they wish they had the vaccine. I don't think about it. And then with this latest vaccine, they're actually requiring you to show a vaccination card, right, in certain places. And some people have such a low and anemic view of God and his gospel, they think salvation's like a vaccination card. They think, you know, what's going to happen? I'm just going to live my life however I want. And at the end of the age, when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to pull out my vaccination card that says, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was 7 or 17 or whatever. But they live the life however the rip they wanted. That's not trusting Jesus. Jesus is not a vaccination shot to get you out of hell. If that's all he is, that might be your destination yet. Now, you don't receive him as a vaccination shot you receive him as a person. You receive him for who he is. We often call Jesus the Savior. We receive him as Savior. That he came not only to save me from the penalty of sin, hell, but he came to save me from the practice of sin, the pursuit of sin, a life of sin, right? That the Jesus who was strong enough to conquer sin for me on the cross is strong enough to conquer sin in me as I'm united to him by faith. And you want that. You want him to save you from your sin. And often it's like, Lord, save me from myself. Because it's a struggle sometimes, right? But there is a compass in your heart that's been re-engineered to go that direction. You want him to save you. Not just from the penalty, but from the practice of sin. And then you receive him as Lord. In other words, he commands my life for his glory. Jesus is not my co-pilot. He's my pilot. Kind of cheesy, but you get the point, right? And his word is to be obeyed, not betrayed. Because a lot of times people say, oh, I've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior and all that. And yet they, they, they say, but I don't, I don't agree with what the Bible teaches there. We're not talking about like end times views. We're talking about basic matters of what it means to follow Jesus and how he wired us as men and women and all the rest. And if, if, if somebody takes something that's very clear in Scripture and says, I've you know, I know Jesus, but I don't agree with that, you're either a liar or you're deceived. Because you know which person of the Godhead inspired this book? The third person treated the Holy Spirit. Holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is, pneuma, is pneumatos, is spirit breathed. And the same spirit who inspired scripture is the same spirit that seals the deal when you trust Christ. He indwells you. And he ain't going to contradict himself. See, you receive him as Lord. And his word gives us how it is he wants us to follow him. And then this third one, I love it, I love it, I love it. Maybe the one that encapsulates all of it. 
You receive him as satisfier. John Piper would say treasure. In John 10, Jesus said, John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He that believes in me shall not hunger, and whoever comes to me shall never thirst. These are images of satisfaction, right? These are images of, of, of fullness. I am not saying that if you have truly received Jesus Christ, you mentally went through all these things. Jesus, I receive you as Savior. Boom. Jesus, I receive you as Lord. Boom. Jesus, I receive you as uh, Satisfier. I'm not even saying that if you have truly trusted Christ, you're all the time being saved from the practice of sin. Trust me, I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that you're all the time perfectly and wonderfully submitting to his lordship. I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that you never go looking for love in all the wrong places. And you never drink from broken cisterns and look for identity and value and joy, ultimate joy. In other I'm, not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is if you truly came to him, not just as a vaccination shot, but for who he is and what you understood at the time, these realities of his saviorship and his lordship and the fact that he satisfies will increasingly shape, change, and impact you because that's who he is. That's what he does, right? So here's a few questions that can help ferret out the difference between knowing and really believing. Can I ask you a few questions? I got one that said yes. So I'll, on the basis of, <laughs> thank you. I want to ask you seriously. What choices have you made since you confessed Christ that you would not have made had you not ever confessed Christ? Or vice versa. What things do you do or not do with, with your body since you confessed Christ that you wouldn't have given a rip about before you confess Christ? What things do you say or not say since you confess Christ that you wouldn't have cared anything about before you confess Christ? What priorities do you make for the family of God, the body of Christ, since you confess Christ as opposed to before you confessed him? What decisions do you make about the ways you use your money since you confess Christ that you wouldn't have made before you confess Christ? What decisions do you make about what you watch or listen to since confessing Christ that you wouldn't have made before you confess Christ? Fair questions, right? What decisions do you make about who are your closest friends since confessing Christ? That wouldn't have mattered before you confess Christ. Now, doing these things is not saving faith. I want to be clear on that, right? But might they perhaps be evidences of true saving faith? Because faith has feet. That's why we say believe-ing. And I guess what I'm trying to say is this, is that when you truly receive Jesus Christ, not just as a vaccination shot, but as a person. 
You don't just want him to rescue you from the penalty of hell, and who doesn't, if they're sane. You just have something up in your gut that just plain old wants him, right? You just, I want you, Lord. I want you, Lord. And you say, I want to I I live for you. I want to glorify you. And I struggle and I mess up and I fall and all that. But, but I really do want to live for your glory. John, or rather, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, verse 1. If, friend, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, for you have died at conversion, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you will also appear with him in glory. God, lavish gift giver, gave us the priceless gift of his son. For God so loved the world, that's the fact, that compelled this act, that he gave his only begotten son. And here's the pact, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Never has so much been said to so many in so few words. But what's it say to you? Or what's God saying to you right now? I believe God wants to speak to people's hearts. He's fully capable of doing that. He does it through his word, and the spirit comes along and puts the pedal to the metal. You're like, whoa, oh, Lord, I think the God of creation is speaking to me right now. He's really cool to do that. Is that happening to you? As we turn to the Lord's table, if, if Han and, and Josh can come, I want, I, want to, I want to lay out two invitations, two things I want to invite you to do. Number one, if you have never truly repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what better season than receive the greatest gift of all? Next week, we're going to look at Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If that's you, there's no special prayer that I'm going to lead you through. You You have to come to God. I can help you with that, and somebody here can help you. You say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your righteous judgment. I'm so thankful that you love me and you put my sins on your son on the cross. He paid it in full and prove it when he rose from the dead. And I want to I trust him now and I want to follow him. I want him to be the Lord of my life. That, that's what, it, you do that from the heart, boom. That's because of the work of God to save you. Wouldn't that be awesome? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There's an enemy that's going to whisper in your ear. I got to wait, you got to wait, you got to wait, you got to wait, you got to wait. He wants you to procrastinate to damnation. And yet the Spirit says, come, come, come to me, come to me, come home. And that's what it is, coming home. Because the, the old St. Augustine said, our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in God. Which leads to the second invitation. Maybe, maybe you really have confessed Christ. And, and you've, seen, you've seen fruit in your life. But you're playing on the margins right now. You know what that means, right? Kind of playing on the margins with his, you know, with, with seeking his, 
saving you from the practice of everyday sin. You're playing on the margins with submitting to his lordship. You're, you are looking for love in all the wrong places. And this is just an invitation to just to come to him afresh, right? To come to him. Again, our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in him. That's the invitation God has for us this morning, family and friends. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is for you. I don't know who, I don't know who the you is, but it's for you. And I'll tell you what, it was just good for me to be reminded of his saviorship, his lordship, and the fact that he is the true treasure of life. This is called the Lord's Table because, well, it's for the Lord's people. If you have never trusted Christ, um, please, please, just, just be an empty ritual. So please don't, don't take this uh, if, if you're not really a Christian. Um, but if you are a Christian, no matter what your denominational background is, if you're walking in obedience with him and you're seeking to walk with a local family of believers, this is for you. And maybe when I fired off those questions, you were a little bit convicted as a believer. Well, am I making decisions and choices and across the whole panorama of things I said that's contrary to my confession of faith? How many people do that? How many people do that? How many people do that? I mean, we all do that, right? But we don't slam dunk it, dunk, slam dunk it and say, well, I got grace. We're like, oh, Lord, thank you for convicting me of that. Help me now to walk in righteousness. And this reminds us this cracker of his body that was broken for the forgiveness of our sins and this juice, his blood that was shed that we might be made clean, clean, and then cleaner even more. And this is a time then to unpack anything you need to confess to, to the Lord himself and then maybe to those who, who caught up in maybe some of your struggles to talk to them as well and get it right with them. But at the end of the day, I want us to remember, we are not remembering a funeral. This is a celebration. Jesus Christ is alive. And we celebrate his forgiveness. And I want us to walk out of here today thinking, because of what God has said to me from his word, by his spirit, I want to live differently this week than I did last week. Not to get his love, but because I've received his saving love in the person of Elizabeth Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, every one of you. This is my body broken for you. Let's eat the bread. just a moment to think about his broken body. Take just a moment to say anything back to the Lord that you need to say. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Healed, family, healed, healed. When they had finished the meal, he took the cup. And he said, take, drink, every one of you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim it. 